0: Welcome to the New Books Network.-
1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards and today I have the great pleasure of interviewing Professor George Schmuckler about his latest book, Men in White Coats: Treatment Under Coercion, is published by Oxford University Press in 2017. Now Professor Schmuckler is a psychiatrist who studied uh, sorry, started practicing as a trainee in 1972. He retired from clinical work in 2012. Now he's an Emeritus Professor of Psychiatry and Society at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience at King's College, London. His book is Men in White Coats, Treatment Under Coercion, as I just mentioned, published by Oxford University Press in 2017. Professor George Snookler, welcome to the show. Uh,
0: Thank you very much, Jane. I'm very pleased um, to accept the invitation um, to speak to you.
1: We're very excited to have you. Now, just to get into it, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this great book, Men in White Coats, Treatment Under Coercion?
0: Okay, well, as you said, I'm a psychiatrist. I uh, actually did my medical uh, studies and intern years in Melbourne, in Australia, and then came to the United Kingdom um, in 1972 and have been here ever since, except for a a period of five years uh, back in in Melbourne. Um, I've always been preoccupied with coercion. in psychiatry from my medical student days. um, I was bothered by the the idea that perhaps psychiatry was a form of social control that was uh, acting under the guise of a medical discipline. And this was an era, I was brought up uh, in in an era when psychiatry was under considerable attack from uh, Foucault, Zas, and R. D. Lang. Uh, who, from uh, different perspectives, uh, criticised the whole enterprise of psychiatry. Now, this troubled me a lot. Also, at around that time, 60s, 70s and 80s, we learnt about the extraordinarily terrible abuses of psychiatry in the Soviet Union, Psych- abuses of psychiatry for political purposes, and that was another wound that uh, needed serious attention. Now, why was this a problem for me? Well, it was a terrible dilemma for me because of all the student placements and experiences I had as an intern, I found psychiatry by far the most interesting and most uh, challenging specialty, Uh, and I wanted... To do psychiatry, I was more interested in minds, I suppose, than bodies. Um, so, I, when I arrived in London, I thought, well, I will get some postgraduate experience in psychiatry, because whatever specialty I eventually end up doing, six months in psychiatry is going to to be helpful. So, I started psychiatry, and I I knew after a a few months, that this was the specialty for me. And I worked with people who were um, very attuned to the difficulties, the problems that preoccupied me. So they were supportive and helpful. We had lots of interesting discussions. But the coercive element continued to preoccupy me, and it led to me doing my doctoral thesis on compulsory admissions to, from a London borough that was the borough of Camden. That involved a study of 150 patients admitted on an order and a control group, I think, of 100 patients. That was a big study funded by the uh, um, Wellcome Trust But, like virtually all of my colleagues, I found the process uh, of detaining someone very, very uncomfortable. Not as much as the patients, of course. But, like my colleagues, I didn't see that in principle there was much wrong with the Mental Health Act. At that time, it was the Mental Health Act 1959. In fact, it was regarded as a revolutionary advance over the previous uh, Mental Health Act, which was the Lunacy Act of 1890, and which aimed at making mental health care as much as possible like general health care. And it enhanced the professional role and reduced the complex, extremely complex, legal machinery of the Lunacy Act. So despite looking uh, in detail at the history and circumstances of these detained patients in in my study, I didn't really see much wrong with the legal grounds for their involuntary admission. There was certainly quite a lot wrong with the psychiatric services at the time, and particularly a failure of follow-up care for those people who were discharged uh, and who fairly soon, reappeared again on a compulsory order. So I could make the excuse that my attention was drawn to this practical problem, about which I I thought a lot could be done to improve matters, and detracted from the, the conceptual issues. Uh, Looking back on on my dissertation when uh, writing the book, I found a quote though which, uh, which is interesting. So I said, quote, some types of mental illness by their nature occasion an impairment of the sufferer's judgment about aspects of the world around him or her and of his or her own state. As a result, he or she may not be able to take a number of decisions responsibly. Compulsory admissions would be warranted on this view where a patient is suffering from a mental illness that impairs his or her judgment and where, as a consequence, the welfare is significantly threatened. So I did see it. it, I failed to realize at that time that the impairment of judgment that I referred to was simply a supposition that I made. One that didn't, however, make any explicit demand uh, under the Mental Health Act when assessing a patient. And crucially, the presumed impairment of judgment uh, was not necessary to be directly tested. And it's, it's this omission that later began to worry me. Uh, I must mention uh, also some other factors. I, I, am I going on too much about? No, this no. Way? Please go
1: on. <laughs> no, no. Go on. Okay.
0: Uh, on one of my visits to Australia, I was when I spent some time in Australia. I was asked to participate in a university debate in Melbourne. I can't remember exactly why I was asked, but it involved uh, some very eminent uh, lawyers, and the subject was therapeutic privilege. Uh, Therapeutic privilege. I'm not sure whether that term is used very much today, but basically it is about whether a doctor is justified and when a doctor might be justified in not disclosing information about the patient's illness and its consequences in the interests of the patient's welfare the idea being that if this uh, information was uh, distressing or upsetting it would impede the patient's ability to make a treatment decision and so i was asked to argue the case i think for therapeutic privilege although (laughs) i might not argue it now but actually in the course of this i it occurred to me that where was this whole notion of informed consent, disclosure, and especially decision-making capacity? Where was it in psychiatry? Why was it so rarely an issue? Whereas in general medicine surgery, it was and had become over the previous 40, 50 years, absolutely fundamental to practice. There was a very obvious movement away from the paternalism that characterised medicine to uh, something more about patient autonomy, self determination. But somehow it seems to have passed psychiatry by. So that at that point I, I thought, okay, there is something seriously wrong with uh, with the way in which involuntary treatment is uh, implemented. And to make matters worse, at that time as well, there was a very strong movement for involuntary outpatient treatment in the community or community treatment orders or involuntary outpatient commitment, different names for it. And this would extend seriously the reach of coercion, involuntary treatment beyond hospital walls. And I was worried about what this might mean. And then I came across an excellent and unfairly overlooked book, I think, by Campbell and Higginbottom called Mental Illness, Prejudice, Discrimination and the Law, which clarified some key issues for me and uh, pointed to some basic principles that would counter the discrimination inherent in the Mental Health Act, uh, especially in the justification of coercive interventions that were not sanctioned in any other medical specialty. And so by the mid-1990s, I started to argue for change. Uh, I've written quite a few papers on the subject. And I wrote the book really to consolidate those into a, a, a more coherent uh, sin- single work, a monograph, and uh, partly actually for me to be able to uh, join the kinds of uh, ideas that I'd expressed in, in other places.
1: And actually just picking up on that point, that was one of my, I think, favourite quotes in the book where you did write that this concept of autonomy has seemed to bypass um, psychiatry and, the, you know, the idea of self-determination. Um, and it's not sanctioned, you just said, in any other sort of area of medicine. Um, there seems to be a sort of tension between, on the one hand, um, a person's autonomy and their personal values And on the other hand, imposing a treatment against a person's wishes because it's seen as some way as necessary in the person's health interests. Now, can you expand upon this tension in law and psychiatry and also in psychiatry and perhaps also allude to how this discriminates against people with mental impairments?
0: Okay, well, overriding a person's refusal of treatment represents, uh, I think we would agree, a serious intrusion into that person's life. There is however a conundrum when it comes to medicine, and that is that on the one hand we aim to respect uh, the autonomy of persons, their right to determine what should or shouldn't be done to them, and their right to define their own goals based on their own particular personal values. On the other hand, the consequences to their health or health interests or well-being uh, of a treatment refusal may be extremely serious, grave, even fatal. So how can this dilemma be resolved? How do we justify intrusions to prevent serious harms to the person or, and to others uh, in psychiatry, not in the rest of medicine? And how can we resolve this dilemma in a way that's morally defensible? Now, when we think about treatment against a person's wishes, most of us will automatically think about psychiatry. How do we justify such intrusions in psychiatry? I'll come to in a moment. But I do want to point out that in general medicine, general surgery, there are also intrusions into a person's um life and an overriding of a wish or or a potential act so that people in surgical wards for example are in a state of post-operative confusion often trying to pull out drips trying to get up trying to leave the hospital um, a large percentage of people in general hospitals now are elderly. They can, with fairly, fairly minor infections—chest, urinary tract—become confused, decide that they want to leave. They may start uh, hallucinating, and I think that there are that restrictions of of, of this kind are common in general medicine surgery we just don't particularly pay much attention to them they seem somehow right but more problematic uh, in in psychiatry um shall i go into how um
1: um mental yeah health i think that'd be really helpful yep yep <laughs> yes please do
0: uh, okay so my my argument is that people with a diagnosis of mental illness or mental disorder are denied key fundamental rights, human rights, on an equal basis with everyone else in our society, and indeed in virtually all societies. These are the right to autonomy or self-determination, the right to liberty, and the right to security of one's bodily and uh, psychological integrity the violation of those fundamental rights becomes very clear when we realize that conventional mental health law such as mental health act uh, in in england which i'm going to refer to a lot because it's the one i know best and which is not which is not a particular outlier so the english and wales mental health act 1983 like other laws of a similar kind discriminate clearly unfairly against people with a mental disorder. Um, Now, why do I say this? Well, there are two sets of rules for involuntary treatment, one for psychiatry and the other for the rest of medicine. In comparing them, the discrimination against people with, with a mental illness becomes obvious. Now, in psychiatry, we have mental health acts, mental health legislation, civil commitment laws. For the rest of medicine, we have where we have statutes. We have something like the Mental Capacity Act uh, of 2005 in in England and, and Wales. Uh, there is a Men- Mental Capacity Act with a different title in Scotland, and in in other countries. Or there are where pe- where there are common law jurisdictions. There are s- principles in dealing with the imposition of involuntary treatment on a person with a medical or surgical condition uh, against their wishes. But the point is that the rules are entirely different in the psychiatric cases versus the non-psychiatric cases. So in psychiatry, the, the usual justification for uh, involuntary detention and in most places for involuntary treatment, are that one, the person has a mental disorder, usually not closely defined, rather vague, permitting a fairly broad interpretation. Uh, It's sometimes said deliberately so, so that advances in research on diagnostic practices and on defining mental disorders will not be uh, interfered with by, by the law. So a diagnosis of mental disorder and secondly, risk. That is the risk of harm to the person, to the patient, to their usually health interests or safety, sometimes well-being, the terms that might be used, or Harm to other people, the protection of others. One doesn't find the protection of others in mental capacity-type legislation or guardianship-type legislation. Now, so I, I'm going to call these criteria the the disorder and risk criteria. These are the criteria in psychiatry. Now, what are the rules in all the other specialties. And they're entirely different, as I say. In non-psychiatric cases, the person's ability or capacity to make a decision about treatment is absolutely fundamental to whether one can begin to justify overriding a treatment refusal. A refusal made with decision-making capacity is respected No matter what the health outcome might be, no matter how grave. Now, the elements of decision-making capacity involve testing a person's functional abilities. And they are, the, the common ones are the person's ability to understand the relevant information about what they're suffering from and what the consequences are of that illness or that they're suffering and what the consequences might be of having or not having various treatments that might be available, the ability of the person to retain that information, the ability of the person to use that information or to appreciate its relevance to their predicament, and the person's ability to weigh that information or that is to reason with the information in the light of what's important to the person and the person's ability to communicate a decision. Now, it's obvious that none of those abilities make an appearance in conventional mental health law. And secondly, even when capacity is lacking, an involuntary intervention is generally only justified if it's in the person's best interests. Now, in assessing best interests, it is, although a contested area it is generally accepted and increasingly so i think in the evolution of thinking about best interests that it's the person's perspective that is key that is the the person's deeply held values and beliefs wishes and feelings these are the terms used in the mental capacity act that these play a significant and, and maybe the paramount role in determining what is in the person's Best interests. Now, there are other interpretations of the best interests, more of an objective kind, doing a kind of checklist or balancing. Act between the costs and benefits of the treatment, but that is that seems to be becoming less uh, common and it's more the subjective best interest along the lines that, that I've described, in which the person's deeply held beliefs and values, wishes and feelings are receiving more uh, emphasis. Now, it's, it should be clear that these two considerations, capacity and best interest, play virtually no role at all in initiating involuntary detention, uh, nearly always, and treatment uh, in mental health care. Now, in some countries, the detention follows the disorder and risk criteria. But the treatment then might require an assessment of the person's uh, ability to give informed consent to the treatment. Now, uh, that's the case in Germany, for example, and and in the United States and and other places. I'm not going to go into that in detail, but I will just say that the way in which the person's competence uh, is assessed varies enormously, even from state to state in the United States, I think. Uh, And also, one of the elements of informed consent is voluntarism. And if somebody is being detained as an involuntary person in a psychiatric institution of some kind, is there agreement to treatment? Can it be voluntary if the cost of saying no is continued detention? Okay, so it's clear. I hope that there is a very a totally different approach to justifici- the justification of involuntary treatment in psychiatry and in the rest of medicine. Now, actually, there are there, there, there is another element, and that is that in, as I mentioned, in capacity law, there is no protection of others element. In psychiatry, that linking of risk the risk to the person, to their health or safety or welfare, and the risk to other people. And they're nearly always there together. There are some exceptions. Uh, Italian uh, Mental Health Act does not have the protection of others. Um, so this allows, if one thinks about this, this then allows the detention of a person with a diagnosis of of a mental disorder, vaguely defined, blurred edges, to be detained preventively, albeit in a hospital uh, eventually, on the basis of risk alone, without having first, like the rest of us, having committed some kind of offence or to be strongly suspected of having uh, committed an offence. Now, this is, seems to me, clearly discriminatory. This is almost a unique liability to detention that people with mental disorder have. There is another exception. It's a, it's a trivial one, and that is the quarantining of people with an infectious disease. Um, although in most countries, and certainly in the UK, it does not allow the involuntary treatment of such a person. It only allows their quarantining, and it's extremely rare. There are less, f- fewer than 10 cases per annum in England compared to now over 60,000 cases of detention of people with a mental disorder. So if we are going to observe the principle of justice, we would have to say that all persons posing an equal risk should be equally liable to preventive detention and that people with a mental disorder are denied the protection from preventive detention enjoyed by by the rest of us so that that that, so so if i can just summarize it and say that the discrimination lies in the failure to respect the autonomy of people with a so-called mental disorder in the same way as it is respected for all other patients.
1: Yeah, it does seem hugely discriminatory in terms of the rights that are abrogated. You mentioned the right to autonomy, the right to liberty and security of the person, the right to in physical and bodily integrity, and this applies exclusively to people with um, a diagnosed, very vague, you said, mental disorder, um, who are categorised as posing some sort of risk them- to themselves or to others, so you're really interesting in your book and also in your previous research. You do propose a solution that would eliminate some discrimination against uh, people with um, mental impairments. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk about this proposal.
0: Okay. Well, the proposal uh, we, uh, a colleague, uh, Professor John Dawson, who's a lawyer, and I have coined the the term a law. Um, So, the framework that we're proposing, which is non-discriminatory, is a framework that is importantly generic. It applies to everyone. There is no requirement that the person should have a diagnosis of a mental disorder. And the framework is based on decision-making ability and best interests, which supports autonomy, as it does in the Mental Capacity Act, but also incorporates the important strict regulation of detention and involuntary treatment that one finds in civil commitment law. Now, it's very clear that there is, in, in the mental capacity in, in England and Wales, for example, that it there are problems in determining whether a person can be um, forced to have treatment in terms of, well, how is it author, authorised? Who is authorising it for how long? What kind of review process is there? What kind of appeals process is there? So we couldn't simply apply the Mental Capacity Act across the board to everyone. John and I felt it was important to to have a strict regulation of involuntary treatment and, uh, and, and, and the important safeguards and protections that are required. Um, okay, so that's our proposal, and it means it's it's generic. It applies to all persons who have a problem with decision making, whatever their their diagnosis, uh, physical or mental, in any setting, medical, surgical, psychiatric, or in the community. There is no need for a specific mental health law. Um, the fusion law is formulated. Uh, so it's applicable across all medical specialties, from psychiatry to orthopaedics. Now, what is important here, and that we, I'm sure you're going to want to discuss, is, well, how, how valid or reliable are these notions of decision-making capacity and uh, best interests? Because so much turns on that in the, in the fusion law.
1: Yeah, perhaps you can elaborate on that now, Um, these ideas about um, decision-making ability and how that works in terms of assessments in the fusion law.
0: Okay, so there has been some evolution in uh, my thinking about this, uh, which which I do uh, describe in the book, but I've taken perhaps a bit further since writing the book. So the first point is that the concept of capacity in best interest as as it occurs in the Mental Capacity Act has met with a favourable response on the whole. But there are some criticisms, have been some criticisms of the notion of decision-making capacity. um, And that is that it seems to be, it aims to be, Almost entirely procedural or cognitive rather than looking at the values of the person whose uh, ability to make decisions is being assessed. It's been argued that values don't play a role in the assessment of capacity. It seems to be uh, taken to be something to do with the way the person's ability to uh, understand, to remember, to think logically, uh, and missing from that it's said uh, is uh, any interest in the person's emotions or, or values. Now, uh, there has been a change, an, an evolution in the way in which capacity is being seen, certainly in the law uh, in, in uh, England uh, and Wales, and and in Scotland i think in which the the move is towards a a much greater regard for the person's values beliefs and, and values now they're obviously very important in in best interests but there is some increased attention to those to the person's values in the notion of capacity now there is a case that shows this very well from the uh, Court of Protection Um, in uh, England. I I could talk about that case. So this this is a... Yeah, I
1: think that would be really interesting, actually. Yeah.
0: yeah. So this is a case of a patient uh, called C um, who... um, became known it's become known as as the case of the um the the lady who who's lives a life that sparkles and it was written up uh, quite a lot in, in 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 the press because of the um, strangeness to to many people of the decision so if i can just quote here from from what the judge said and he's summing up So he said C is a person to whom the epithet conventional will never be applied. By her own account, the account of her eldest daughters and the account of her father, C has led a life characterized by impulsive and self-centered decision making without guilt or regret. C has had four marriages and a number of affairs and has, it is said, spent the money of her husbands and lovers recklessly before moving on when things got difficult or the money ran out. She has, by their account, been an entirely reluctant and at times completely indifferent mother to her three caring daughters. Her consumption of alcohol has been excessive and at times out of control. C is, as all who know her, and as C herself appears to agree, a person who seeks to live entirely and unapologetically on her own terms, that life revolving largely around her looks, men, material possessions, and living the high life. In particular, it's clear that during her life, C has placed a significant premium on youth and beauty and on living a life that, in C's words, sparkles. Now, this case arose because C had taken a huge overdose of paracetamol uh, with champagne and had uh, renal failure, kidney failure, for which she was receiving dialysis. She decided to refuse the dialysis. Now, the consequences of refusing renal dialysis is Almost certain, uh, almost certain fatal outcome, and it can be within a week or so. So this was a very serious issue and made even more serious by the fact that the physicians, the renal physician, argued that her chance of a complete recovery of renal function was as high as 85 or 90%. Now, what was the decision of the judge? The judge concluded that C actually had decision-making capacity. This was against the view of the psychiatrist who said that C had a personality disorder and was unable to uh, make a decision according to the standard criteria for capacity, particularly And the issue particularly is about the use and way element, the ability to reason with the information uh, in the light of what's important to the person. So this is what the judge said. He said, the decision C has reached to refuse dialysis can be characterized as an unwise one. That C considers that the prospect of growing old, the fear of living with fewer material possessions, and the fear that she has lost and will not regain her sparkle, outweighs a prognosis that signals continued life will alarm and possibly horrify many. C's decision is certainly one that does not accord with the expectations of many in society. Indeed, Others in society may consider C's decision to be unreasonable, illogical, or even immoral within the context of the sanctity accorded to life by society in general. None of this, however, is evidence of a lack of capacity. That's quite an extraordinary case, but it shows the degree towards which the person's, the importance of the person's values in the assessment of decision making ability um, has moved. Um, have, do you want to... Uh, yeah, I think that's let, a
1: really interesting case. Um, I remember reading that uh, the uh, C's daughter had actually said that her decision was consistent with yes. uh, C living her authentic values, um, this idea of uh, living a life which sparkles. Um, it was yep. very interesting. Yep. And so now I think... That, the, the, sorry, go on.
0: Well, I was just going to say how that... Uh, f- Chimed very well with with some thinking I'd been doing about the role of values in assessing decision making ability and the uh, work that I'd done with Natalie Banner, a philosopher who just happened to be at King's College London. I'd read her PhD online; she'd done that at a university up north. And I was going to contact her, and then I was told that she was actually now at uh, King's. Um, so she had really written this uh, account of decision-making ability from the perspective of the philosophy of Davidson, American philosopher, Don Davidson, who talks about a radical interpretation. Um, shall I say a yeah, bit more please. about that yeah, no, yeah please do okay so radical interpretation davidson was uh, interested in how one makes sense of a, a person he called the radically unfamiliar person so somebody that you know nothing about you don't know the person's language you don't know the culture they come from you don't know what kinds of um, goals and and what kind of life such a person wishes to lead. How does one go about um, interpreting, that's the term he's using, or making sense of uh, that person, of what that person says, what they do, the beliefs that, that they might have. And he says that we are, we do it through the kind of mental structures that we share with with all other people. It's somehow built into us. Is is this ability um, to interpret other people, and we do it by employing what he calls the principle of charity, and that is, if somebody is saying something that seems strange, bizarre. Um, Totally unexpected. Um, we 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 use we look at two things about what that person is saying or believing or or doing, and the first is how coherent that that is what they're saying or what they're believing with their other beliefs and uh, values and concept, concept of, of, of the good life for them. So it's how, conce- how, how, how coherent the whole system of beliefs and values is and how coherent a particular statement that a person makes that seems rather odd, how consistent or coherent it is with that set of beliefs and values. That's the first. And the second is what he calls correspondence. That is that we assume that when a person is talking about their beliefs and values or accounting for their actions, that they have an appreciation of reality, that what they're saying or doing corresponds with with the real world as we agree the real world is constituted. Now, this the principle of charity seems to me to be an excellent guide to a person making an assessment about whether somebody who's presenting a rather bizarre or unusual idea or refusing a treatment that may seem to the assessor to be obviously a prudent or, or wise one, um, To to understand whether this person has the the ability to make that decision or whether that decision is somehow out of joint with that person's systems or system of uh, beliefs and values. And if it is out of joint with that system of beliefs and values, then that one might conclude undermines that person's ability. To make a decision. So what I think that in the case of C, the judge was seeing, was the coherence of C's system of beliefs and values, and that her decision, which seemed so uh, imprudent, so unwise, so grave in its consequences, he said, well, it's coherent. With her system of beliefs and values, and her decision-making ability is is thus not undermined.
1: Hmm. And I think this is a uh, probably a good point to pick up on this idea of a person's um, consistent values and ways of living their life, and especially as in your interpretation of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, or the CRPD. Um, it, it talks about the rights, the will and the preferences of persons with impaired mental capacity. Um, and so you provide a sort of a solution in how to reconcile these sort of really co- like competing tensions. Um, I think one of the examples you give in the book is an, uh, is in relation to anorexia. So a person's value may be to, you know, stay alive, um, but their preference may to be to not eat Um you know, these things don't sort of go together. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about all of these kind of, sort of tensions um, and reconciling these in uh, in relation to the CRPD.
0: Okay. Well, uh, I, I think the CRPD, the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, uh, which I think was adopted in 2006 by um, the General Assembly of the United Nations, I think this is an extraordinarily important convention uh, for people with disabilities and that includes people with what are termed psychosocial uh, disabilities or what people might call um, mental illness or mental disorders of uh, some kind. Um, so if, if countries adopted, well in fact I think the the last count, 177 countries had actually um, signed um, the convention. Um, there are only, I think, 196 countries in the world. So uh, that is nearly all countries have. If they were actually to uh, act in accordance with the CRPD, the standing of people with disabilities in our society would be immensely enhanced. But there also has been a problem, an area of controversy, and one which has really forced me to think uh, very carefully about um, the meaning of decision-making capacity and, and best interests. So. The CRPD, in Article Twelve, which is called uh, "Equal Recognition Before the Law," says that. Uh, let me find it here.
1: Um, I should I should know it off the top of my head.
0: <laughs> yes, I just want to. So it's it's for uh, paragraph four. Uh, anyway, well, I it's, it's I should have had it better prepared, but it's it. It says that it talks about the Article 12 says that a legal capacity is something that all people have, including people with a disability. And they have it, uh, in a, it they retain a legal capacity under all circumstances with as as do other people. So people with disabilities must not be considered in, term, in, in terms of legal capacity as being different to other people. Now, legal capacity has two elements. It has the, uh, the to have legal standing, that is to have rights, to be recognised as having rights. And secondly, legal agency, and that is the ability to act on those rights and to have those rights legally recognized. Now, from that, in a way which uh, I'm not a lawyer, which I have some difficulty, the committee for the CRPD. So that's the committee set up by the United Nations to oversee the implementation of the CRPD. And as part of that uh, obligation they have, they also may be asked to make interpretations of articles that seem to be, there's, there seems to be some difficulty or some disagreement about what the article really means. Um, I hope I'm right about that. The, the function of those committees, Yeah, So the, the the committee then made an interpretation about Article 12 concerning legal capacity, saying that support in the exercise of legal capacity must respect the rights, will, and preferences of persons with disabilities and should never amount to substitute decision-making. State parties must review the laws, allowing for guardianship and trusteeship, and take action to develop laws and policies to replace regimes of substitute decision-making by supported decision-making, which respects the person's autonomy, will, and preferences. The denial of the legal capacity of persons with disabilities and their detention in institutions against their will, either with with uh, their will either without their consent or with the consent of a substitute decision maker constitutes an arbitrary deprivation of liberty and violates articles 12 and and also 14 so the committee is saying that substitute decision making is absolutely out uh, prohibited now that means that involuntary Treatment, which involves clearly substitute decision making, is prohibited. Absolutely prohibited. Now, I understand the rights as they're very beautifully presented in the CRPD, but I don't understand or didn't understand or I don't understand what is intended by will and preferences, because this very, very important uh, injunction that we must respect the will and preferences of all persons, including persons with disabilities, that has not been defined by the committee. So I thought, well, you know, what, what could it mean so I thought, well, you know, what what is the meaning of will and what is the meaning of preference? Now, I learned from lawyers like John Dawson that when a law, when a statute uses two words, those words have a different meaning, yeah, or else you would just use one word. So presumably there is a difference between will and preference. So immediately, you know, um, one must respect both will and preferences, but what if will and preferences mean different things? Um, So there's a problem there. And then I looked at preference, and that's fairly easy. That's in the Oxford English Dictionary, and it is preferring one alternative over another. That's fairly straightforward. But will, will is something uh, that is much more difficult, and uh, there's a lot of philosophy in the the area of philosophy of mind and action about will. And of course, philosophers don't agree with each other. Um, But just taking the, the, the meaning of the word will in everyday language and comparing it to preference, you wouldn't say where there's a preference, there's a way. But you do say where there's a will, there's a way. So that will seems to represent something much more resolute, much more determined than a preference a preference is something that is less deeply rooted in some way in 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 a person's goals uh, and something that's expressed more in in the moment or, or in the present so that so in everyday language there seems to be that difference in philosophy there is a general i think a general idea that there is a difference between the will and something like a desire or a wish or an intention, which I'm going to call a preference. So the will is some higher order structure which incorporates something about person's deep beliefs, values, conception of, of, of the good. Their deeply held commitments, which against which a desire or an intention or a wish is tested, to see whether one whether the person should act on that desire or or wish, and I'm calling that desire or wish a preference. So I'm saying that the difference between will and preference is that the will is a higher order test about whether a preference is consistent with that will and is giving reasons for, for uh, and the will is giving reasons for a person to act on that uh, desire or wish or, or, or intention. Now, I think that's really very helpful in understanding capacity. And I think it links pretty well with Davidson's radical interpretation and with the case of C. And that is that when somebody says, no, I reject this treatment that you're offering me. So somebody with anorexia nervosa, for example, says, um, no, I, I, um, I'm I rejecting the need for me to put on any weight. Um, is that rejection of treatment is it coherent with that person's deeply held beliefs, values, commitments, and so on? That is, is that preference for not having treatment consistent with the person's will? Now, the will um, would be those, as I'm interpreting it, Based manifest in the person's deep beliefs and values, is the, the, the person with anorexia nervosa, is that rejection of treatment consistent with that person's deeply held beliefs and values? And I think that what, what one finds, and I think anorexia nervosa is probably the most difficult of all the, the um, psychiatric disorders in, in understanding what a lack of capacity might involve. Um, Because the person with anorexia nervosa might actually pass the conventional capacity test, the more procedural capacity test, that is, the person will uh, understand why the diagnosis of anorexia nervosa has been given, that it involves losing a lot of weight, and it involves not wishing to put on any weight, and feeling distress about putting on weight, and that person will understand, be able to retain that, will be able to understand, yes, that this could be a description of the person's current uh, predicament, um, and understand, the person may understand that there may be a very bad outcome for the person if uh, he or she, usually a she, continues to self-starve or to vomit, uh, to take excessive laxatives, all sorts of physical harms, and, and maybe even death. Understands all of those things and says, but actually, you know, it's more important, I think it's more important for me not to put on weight than those other things. Um, now, if those other things had been until the person developed uh, anorexia, what was important? What was most important, of greatest value to the to to the person? Then that refusal of treatment is grossly inconsistent with that person's. Life choices. So, you know, I I think in the book I talk about a medical student, a a young woman who, as a child, who's the daughter of of two doctors, who even as a as a young child wanted to be a doctor, would play with her father's stethoscope and listen to the heartbeat of her siblings. Uh, At school, excelled in biology and those sorts of subjects. Loved it. Got into a top medical school was doing very well um excellent top top level student absolutely committed to being a doctor and then had her first serious boyfriend and that failed and she decided that maybe she was a bit overweight a little bit overweight not hugely overweight and so she went on on a diet and then that diet seemed to develop a momentum, a life of its own, and it continued, and she lost an enormous amount of weight, um, and developed all of those characteristic um, features uh, of anorexia nervosa, fear of gaining weight, pursuit of thinness, um, and that. I, I think that the description that sometimes one reads that patients with anorexia nervosa would prefer death to putting on weight, I think that's not really the case. There's always an enormous amount of ambivalence. Um, some patients might say it, but, but it's, it's, there's always ambivalence. Or the patient does not really believe that their, that their weight is anywhere near the, um, a weight that might turn out to be uh, fatal. But you can see here the the clear change in the person's will. Um, and it's for that, I think for for that reason that one that I would argue that person's decision-making ability is undermined.
1: And I think you touch on um, quite a few points there in relation to the CRPD and some of the difficulties it raises. For example, you just talked about reconciling a person's will and preferences, and um, that was, I think, a really interesting sort of way of defining them um, that may actually work quite well. Um, One of the other areas in the CRPD that's um, caused some controversy and it relates to what you said before in relation to Article 12 and the right to equal legal capacity um, is this interpretation of the committee has come out and given a really robust interpretation of the right to legal capacity and it said that um, it can never be um, uh, denied on any basis, even if there are attendant circumstances, for example, even when a crime's been committed. Now, this has caused, as I just said, quite a bit of controversy in relation to um, criminal Uh, defendants. So, for example, when people are found unfit to plead or not guilty by reason of mental disorder. Um, But with the fusion law, you actually present a really interesting um, uh, uh, suggestions for reform um, that may better actually accommodate these categories of people. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk about how fusion law might apply to people, um, offenders and accused with impaired mental functioning.
0: Okay. Um, I just want, I think I should just add uh, something about best interests. Um, oh, yeah, please do. That, that what follows very clearly from my interpretation of decision-making capacity uh, as being manifest when the will and preferences are aligned uh, reasonably, which is usually the case for, mo- for people who do have decision-making ability, um, is that if there is A diverse uh, a a difference if there's an inconsistency between will and preferences, and the will is is seriously threatened by a preference like uh, refusing treatment when it's um, clearly uh, appropriate and consistent with the person's previous will. um, That best interest then becomes fairly straightforward, and that is giving. Effect helping the person to give effect to their will. So, for the person with anorexia nervosa that I described, the justification for an involuntary intervention, which wasn't necessary in this particular case, I might add, um, the justification would be that the preference is. capable of causing serious harm to that person's will, that is, that person's beliefs, values, life goals, um, things, the commitments important to that person, and that the treatment should be directed towards giving effect, facilitating the expression of, of the person's will. Is that mm. clear?
1: Yeah, no, mm. I think so. What you're saying is that there is this um, consistency between a person's best interests as subjectively assessed and their will, which is their sort of authentic values in the way their yes. idea of living the good life, which would at times actually justify coerced intervention.
0: Yes, yeah. In fact, I might consider, I might argue that the only justification for a coerced, for a coerced coerced intervention, uh, not just in psychiatry, of course, but we're talking about a generic law, would be a serious uh, inconsistency between a person's will and uh, preferences. Mm
1: -hmm. Yep, that makes perfect sense.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But, well, let me just add that there might be, there, there is also the rights, bit in the CRPD, isn't there?
1: Mm, Yes. It must respect the rights,
0: will, and preferences. Now, Mm -hmm. so that's another thing that that is expected to be respected. Um, So all three are not going to necessarily align in the same direction. And a very common situation I think that we would encounter is somebody whose will is to continue to live independently in the community perhaps in a flat, where that person's uh, powers and abilities, perhaps as a result of a neurodegenerative uh, disorder, Alzheimer's disease, means that that person becomes vulnerable, perhaps to exploitation, perhaps to uh, to even to uh, violence. Um, so they the right, they have a right, presumably, well, they have a will to live independently in a situation which exposes the person to these risks, but they also have a right, don't they, to be free from violence and exploitation and abuse. So how does one resolve uh, that, that dilemma? And it, it is possible that a state may say, well, look, the sanctity of life, the right to life supersedes a person's will to end their life. Um, so uh, I think society plays a role in 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 setting some kind of balance, perhaps between rights and will. Um, but I will make I do make the point um, that whatever society says about the right to life must apply across the board to all people not just people with a mental disorder or mental impairment so if there is an override of a person's will say for living independently in certain circumstances or for protecting that person from serious imminent harm that must apply to people with medical surgical conditions as well it has to apply to all and in fact you know when we when we haven't gone into the problem of risk assessment and just how extraordinarily imprecise it is and especially for serious outcomes like suicide or serious violence our ability to assess that risk is clinically very, very poor indeed, and the false positives vastly outweigh the true positives. The test will be wrong ninety percent of the time or or even up to ninety eight or ninety nine percent of the time. Um, but given that that problem of assessing the risk of suicide or serious violence the risk of a person having a fatal outcome from a medical or surgical condition without treatment is much more easily predicted. So what what I'm arguing for is that there's a parity between mental health care and all other health care in relationship to overriding a person's will.
1: And I think that would also be consistent um, with the CRPD. So it's this as you said, a generic application, um, uh, the same laws. We need, essentially, I think what you're saying is we need reform of the laws so that they apply equally to all people with mental impairments as to those without. Um, so then I guess bringing these points together, I'm wondering what do you see are the implications with regards to the need for legislative reform?
0: Um uh, you, you raised the forensic issue. Do you want to Oh, do yes. That? Sorry, we sorry. Yes, let's go back that? to that.
1: Yes, yes, of course. Please do. Go back okay. to that. All right. So uh, here
0: what troubles me, has always troubled me, is the fact that there seems to be a discrimination in relationship to other offenders when we're looking at people with a mental impairment who have committed some sort of offence. And the problem there is that people with a mental impairment, and I'm not using mental disorder anymore because we're now talking about a generic fusion law. It could be somebody with some physical disorder that has led to to, uh, offending. What what is really troubling is that although the law purports to be interested in the welfare of the person the mentally disordered or mentally impaired offender that mentally impaired offender can be detained or deprived of their liberty for a period of time vastly longer than would be const- then then a person a non-disordered person would receive in their sentence, following the same offence, same kind of offence, with a similar degree of seriousness or or gravity. Now, that represents, I think, quite clearly a discrimination against the person with a mental impairment. So, how can we then have a non-discriminatory law in a forensic context. Now, let's have a look at the person who has been found guilty of a, an offence. And I'm talking about serious offences because non-serious offence, it's quite possible that the person would be diverted down a health route. And if there was involuntary treatment, it would be exercised through the civil System, So, I think we're talking about serious offences, persons being found guilty of a serious offence. And let's say that this person lacks decision-making capacity and meets the best interest test. Now, they would then meet the criteria for involuntary treatment and could be sent to hospital involuntarily. But That the time that such an order might run needs to be fixed. And my proposal is that the total time that a person with a mental impairment uh, is required to serve an order or a sentence they have been found guilty, they, they have been convicted of the offence, needs to be commensurate with the total time that a person, the non-disordered person, would need to serve their sentence. That would include the period of full deprivation of liberty in custody and then restricted uh, period of restricted uh, liberty following release from prison or from hospital that the total time must be commensurate for both kinds of offender. So if the person lacks decision-making capacity, they could go to a treatment, they could be ordered to go to a hospital for involuntary treatment. But once decision, their decision-making capacity is regained, they would then be faced with a choice. Either they could stay in hospital as a voluntary patient, if that was appropriate for for further treatment, or if they choose, they could leave the hospital, but that would mean going to prison, but for a finite period of time. Or it might be that they might be seen as fit for discharge to the community. But the community supervision does need to have teeth. Uh, I don't think that our society would be prepared to accept community supervision for somebody who has committed a serious uh, offence and who then leaves hospital after a fairly short period of uh, detention. So I'm suggesting that we really need to look carefully at the community supervision that it must include mandatory reviews um, and that it must have a condition of a mental health assessment. If there are any signs of relapse or risk to others, the person has no choice, but they must have go for that mental health assessment. They can only be treated on a voluntary basis if they retain decision-making capacity. However, if they relapse and lose decision-making capacity and meet the best interest test, they could then be treated on an involuntary basis. Now, they're the teeth that such a supervision order might have, but it should also be constructive, offering support and help, as well as having a monitoring role. and, And there may be a role for special types of supported accommodation. The supervision one might think about in in order to give it even more teeth, and this becomes important perhaps with people uh, with mental condition defences where they're going to actually not have a custodial uh, sentence at all. One might consider a breach of a community order as an offence in itself. Now, there, is, uh, there are examples of this in, in English law, certainly. There's a Prevention of Harassment Act of 1997, I think, where there is a community order. And if the person breaches the terms of that order, they then return to the court and are charged with a new offence, which is the breach of that order, uh, which may involve a custodial uh, sentence up to five years or or other disposals. So if if we are concerned about the risk presented by somebody within this system, the time-limited period of deprivation of liberty, then one might think of um, the community supervision order having teeth. For the offender with a mental impairment where that person might benefit from treatment but who actually has decision-making capacity, then that person could not be treated involuntarily under the terms of the fusion law. They would have a choice to go to hospital, but as a voluntary patient, or if they don't consent to go into hospital with a voluntary patient, then they would go to prison like a normal offender. I mean, they have the decision-making capacity, they understand what the consequences are of their disorder, they and they make a choice. Now, one would hope that they would, I would hope as a clinician, they would choose hospital treatment, but but they may not. They can, of course, be transferred to hospital later if, if that's appropriate and the person consents. Obviously, if they become ill and lose capacity and treatments in their best interest, they could be treated involuntarily in the hospital. And they would then, the, the such a person with decision-making capacity would be discharged on a community supervision order on the same basis as um, those without, who who, who started off uh, in hospital. Now, there is a, a, an objection that has been made to this, and that is, what about people who need restriction orders you know who who are likely to continue to be at high risk to others if you limit the term of their prison sentence or limit the term of their order or sentence to that which would be appropriate for the non-disordered offender we're not society is not going to be protected in the same way and here i would argue i don't know how common this is in, in, in across the world, but in the UK, there is the option of an extended sentence. There are extended sentences for people where the judge determines, and it depends on the current offence um, as well as previous offending, the imposition of an extended sentence, which may be for five years or eight years, or in some instances for life, it's actually a discretionary life sentence, um, I would not see a problem under the fusion law with people with a mental impairment being put on an extended sentence or order on exactly the same basis, on exactly the same criteria as the non-disordered offender.
1: Mm, um, Yeah, actually in Hong Kong there is um, a dangerous offender's uh, ordinance, which has the same effect as the UK one. that, um, And it, it's like you say, and it's condis- consistent with what you've said about the fusion law, um, it could be applied generically, so not just specifically to offenders and accused with um, mental disorders.
0: Yeah. Well, one way of dealing with this, I mentioned earlier, the discrimination in conventional mental health law uh, of the protection of others as it applies to people with mental disorder, that is, it's a form of preventive detention purely on the basis of risk. One could um, argue against, we could suggest an alternative non-discriminatory um, law which would be a generic dangerousness legislation law. So it, would, it wouldn't matter whether the person has a mental disorder or not. If they present a risk according to whatever the criteria are, then they could be, uh, preventively detained in, in, in custody.
1: And that's consistent with what you have said about risk, about it being notoriously difficult to predict, and yet it's only people with mental disorders um, that are sort of subject to these risk assessments. Um, yeah, so I guess just bringing these points together, can you just comment briefly on the implications with regards to the need for legislative reform as you see it? Well,
0: um, I would argue that the case that conventional mental health law discriminates against people with uh, mental illness, mental disorder, mental impairments, is uh, incontrovertible. Um, most people I manage to convince that, that this is the case. The the problem then becomes what to do about it. Um I think it's the case, is it not, that if there is a breach of human rights that are civil or political rights, then there is a need for immediate um, rectification. Um, whereas social, economic, cultural rights, it is a, a process um, that must move forward, but at a pace which is, which is appropriate. So for, on that basis, then I think it is urgent that we replace mental health law with uh, fusion law, or, or we make, make mental health law the same as um, mental capacity uh, type legislation, and that needs to be done immediately. Um, I think that the, the 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 argument for this is is very strong if one accepts the the fact that there is this fundamental uh, discrimination. Whether that will happen, uh, I don't know, and I I I think in the book I try and look at what the future might hold, and I see that there is a tension between two two possible directions. One is, as, as we've discussed with the CRPD, and generally uh, an enhancement of the voice of patients or service users, people with uh, mental illness or psychosocial disabilities. Uh, increasingly, their their is being heard. They're having increasingly greater playing greater role in the design of services uh, in the kinds of programs that are available um, that there is a move towards empowerment of, uh, of autonomy right to self-determination um, and the crpd has been ex- extremely important in this but But if one looks at other areas, the uh, Council of Europe has actually made a statement, a parliamentary statement, that we must um, minimize or or even eliminate the use of coercion in uh, mental health care. Um, The WPA, World Psychiatric Association, has set up a task force which is um, charged with supporting the implementation of uh, alternatives to coercion. I I happen to be on that uh, task force. So that's the positive direction that I hope we might go in. But of course, the other side is the, the risk society that we many of us live in, and I think the UK has been one of those societies, certainly England uh, has, where there is perhaps not such a, a sense that, well, where the rights of people with mental disorders are somehow not considered important enough. When set against the risks to society, mainly to the protection of other people, that would be engendered by changing the law along the lines that that I've described, and that's that's a very powerful force. I don't know what it's like in Hong Kong. I think it's, I think
1: it's quite similar. Um, yeah. perhaps even I would say it's further behind than the UK in that sense.
0: Yeah. So uh, I think I, I, I see the tension between these two. Um, I, I, one thing I haven't mentioned, which I think is really fundamental to, to, uh, and, and expressed perfectly in mental health law, is the prejudicial stereotypes that are so deeply rooted in, in, in our societies, in our culture, concerning people with uh, mental illness. And the first is... Well, you know, they're not competent to decide for themselves. And so why should a Mental Health Act have, have any question about capacity or competence? It seems to be an error to take that seriously. These people are just not capable of sound judgment. And the second stereotype is that somehow dangerousness to other people is intrinsic to mental disorder. And so, of course, we need to be able to act to prevent people with mental illness from harming other people, even before there is any evidence that they have harmed uh, any other people. And it seems to me that the Mental Health Act gives perfect expression to those two stereotypes.
1: Mm. Yeah, and that, um, that point is captured in um, Article 8 of the Convention, which... Um, obliges states who are party to reduce and end stigma against um, people with disabilities. Um, so it does seem in that sense like quite an uphill battle but it was so refreshing to read your book because it does provide what seems to be a realistic solution in terms of a path for reform and it is heartening to hear, you know, of the work that you're doing and work that is being done to... Um, you know, end discrimination against this category of people.
0: Yes. Well, now, Northern Ireland has, has actually passed a fusion-type law.
1: Yeah, so that'll be really interesting to see how that yep. turns out. Um, hopefully a model for reform.
0: Yep. Of course, Northern Ireland has all sorts of political problems at the moment. They don't actually have a – I don't think they have a government at the moment. Um but, but the law has been passed and it's, it's received the Queen's assent. So, you know, it is, it is there on the statute books and it's hoped that it might be implemented in 2022. 20, and a lot of other George- countries have looked at uh, in, including capacity criteria within their uh, conventional mental health law, which is uh, at least bringing in the notion of uh, person's uh, beliefs and values.
1: Yeah, it does give one hope um, when you're working in this area of law. Now, George, I've taken up quite a lot of your time. So just before you go, I'm wondering if you can tell me what you're working on now. Um, Well, uh,
0: what I regard as, as being especially important is the sort of thing I'm doing with you, and that is really pointing out the the discrimination within mental health law and arguing for the need for change. Um, I'm still uh, thinking quite a lot about refining the concepts of capacity and best interests. Um, I'm more and more interested in in the forensic implications of a fusion law, and we haven't had time to go into the mental condition defences, and they they really present huge problems. But I think they're soluble. And I'm working with the WPA um, and uh, trying to foster the... uh, minimization of the use of coercive uh, interventions in uh, mental health care i am at uh, currently the chair of the special committee of human rights in the royal college of psychiatrists and we're trying to push uh, our profession and uh, the college to uh, take up a policy of um, reducing coercion and uh, fostering development of alternatives to coercive interventions
1: well you do sound uh very busy with um lots of extremely important tasks um and i'm looking forward to um you know seeing what comes out of that Um, very interesting and very very worthwhile um so just to sum up i'm jane richards on and this is you've been listening to new books in law it's a channel on the new books network and i've had the great pleasure of speaking today with Professor George Schmuckler about his latest book, Men in White Coats, Treatment Under Coercion. George, thank you for your time.
0: Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.